DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Omar. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back. We're moving on to Chapter 4, the principles of the Church's social doctrine. It has to be grounded in principles. Exactly. That's so important for our foundational formation. Right. What the Church has said, and, and with regard to the social teaching, and, and we've talked about this before, is that the church is going to come and tell you this economic system needs to be used at this particular period of time, or or this governmental system is the best and should be used for this people. What the church does through the social teaching is provide principles, principles for reflection, criteria for judgment, and directives for action. That's what the social teaching is. And so uh, here in chapter 4, at the end of part 1 of the compendium, the Church, after talking about this human dignity and the importance of human dignity and the image of God and and uh, and this rootedness in Scripture and, and all the things we've already talked about, here, finally, in a sense, we, we mm-hmm. get here are the principles and eventually the values that the Church puts forward as we go try to live our life out into the world. Number one driving principle is the dignity of each human person. Exactly. Then areas that may not be quite as clear to folks, we've talked about it before, but I think it bears repeating, mm-hmm. the importance of understanding the common good. Exactly right. The common good, subsidiarity and solidarity, the compendium says, are sort of the three unchanging principles along with the dignity of the human person. And we've already talked about that length in chapter three. Mm-hmm. So here in chapter four, they're putting forward the common good, subsidiarity and solidarity. The two other principles that are mentioned in this chapter are the universal destination of goods, which is really an outcrop or a corollary of the common good. Mm-hmm. And the other principle is participation, which is a corollary or outcrop of subsidiarity. So you have three grounding, unchanging principles in the common good, subsidiarity and solidarity, and then two corollaries that come from the first and the second in the universal destination of goods and participation. With the common good, what I like about the companion is it, is it kind of helps us understand what, what it isn't. And at, at one point it says it's, it's not simply just what the majority wants, a majority rule. And, and that's actually part of the danger of a democratic system. This is why the church doesn't say that this system of government is better than another because all systems have their positives and negatives. And one of the negatives mm-hmm. of our system is the majority can be a tyrant and tell the minority they want or what's best, which might not actually be what's good for the country. On the flip side of that, there could be the desire to be able to give that minority a voice. But for the Christian, we have to be very careful that 
in responding to that, the voice that we're hearing is something that doesn't violate virtue, doesn't violate the moral order. Exactly. And that's the struggle, isn't and it? And that's the struggle, and that is the heart of what we mean by the common good, because what the church tells us is when looking at the common good, we can't look at it just as a matter of socioeconomic or material goods. Those are important, obviously, mm-hmm. but because we're both soul and body, and we talked about this in chapter three, because we're both soul and body, you know, spirit and flesh, we have moral spiritual needs and, and rights and goods that we, that the, that the state is required to try to, to, to help and foster as well. And so if as Christians, looking at how we help bring about the common good, we only focus in on the economy. That question, are we better off four years later? That's mm-hmm. an okay question, but that can't be the only question. What is our, our moral fabric like? And if that's being undermining, you know, the, the spirituality of, of a people, if that's undermining the culture, then, uh, then we've got bigger problems that we have to be working towards. I'm recalling the, the wonderful teaching of an incredibly wise and gifted saint that lived oh my gosh, well over 1,500 years ago, probably even longer than that, and that's St. Benedict. Yeah. Who talked in his holy rule, right off the bat, the importance of balance. Yes. We need to have balance in our lives in so many areas, and that's essentially in the common good. I think that's a that's a real key. That's exactly right. And part of that balance, and the, and the, the, the compendium says this too with regard to all the principles, is recognizing that, you know, as a church, we're not an either-or church. We're both and church. Mm-hmm. So with the common good, as with all the principles, it's, you know, the, the body and the soul, the spirit and the flesh, but it's also common good with subsidiarity, with solidarity, with participation, with universal relationship goods. It's all of them. We can't just pick and choose. Uh, the mm-hmm. same thing with the church's teaching. You know, this is why this this doctrine is so important and so wonderful because it is an integrated whole and it, we do damage to it and we start picking it apart. But this balance is absolutely important um, because it, it presumes um, that uh, we all have a stake uh, in making sure that the common good is brought forward. And if we all have a stake, then all voices have to be able to be heard. All voices have to be able to, to contribute uh, to some, some degree. It doesn't mean that all voices are right, though. I don't mean to say mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that we all have a stake on this. So when, so when the church asks the question, well, who's responsible for the common good? The first answer the compendium gives is, we all are. We are responsible. You and me as individual citizens, as human persons, we are responsible. But beyond us, the state is, it exists in order to maintain the common good. We exist as human beings for the sake of you know, that Baltimore catechism of, of knowing and loving God and serving him and being with him forever in heaven. But the state exists to maintain the common good. And so because its whole existence is justified by bringing about and maintaining the common good, then the state is the means by which we help maintain the common good. The concept of relationship just keeps coming up for me because it you can see it played out, for an example, in a home. If a parent provides for all the material needs for a child— all the all the toys, all of the visual aids. I mean, everything surrounds them to bring them happiness, but doesn't embrace them in love, have conversations with them, to hear what they're saying and get to know them. The balance is so off-kiltered. We provided materially. We took care of all the things that should make you happy, but we didn't provide for you that interaction, that love that helps in that formation. 
things. Right, exactly. And and as we're discerning those things about you know what what level of material wealth is is good and what 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 do we mean by the common good in terms of the socioeconomic material? Blessed John Paul the Great wrote this this wonderful encyclical in uh, 1987 on the 20th anniversary of Paul VI, Popolo and Progressio. John Paul II's encyclical was called Solicitudo Rei Socialis, or On Social Concerns, the English. Mm-hmm. And in On Social Concerns, John Paul II talks about uh, the consumerist society, this sort of throwaway society, this society where it talks about our constant sort of need to, to consume and take and we become slaves. In fact, the compendium repeats that phrase a little bit later. But one of the things that he says as a sort of a remedy to what you're talking about, mm-hmm. as he says that we need to look at our things, the things we buy, the things we consume, in terms of how, uh, how they relate to our vocation. How does the thing that I buy, how, does, how do the policies we, we engage in, how, do, how, does the, how is the common good served, right? If it's not serving my vocation as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a brother, uh, as a neighbor, if, if, if my policies or the policies of the state aren't encouraging virtue in those vocations or making it easier for me to pursue those vocations, then it's not doing its, its job. And this is precisely why the common good is defined in the compendium and the catechism at Vatican II as the sum total of social conditions that allow me as an individual or as a group right, to seek total human fulfillment more fully and more easily. But what's total human fulfillment? I mean, if the, if the point of the common good is to create the society that allows me to reach human fulfillment, well, then what's human fulfillment? If I, the, my understanding of what that means is going to color my understanding of the common good. For the Catholic, for the Christian, human fulfillment must mean sanctity. It must mean holiness. It must mean, the, mean an integrated life rooted in prayer and a spirituality that, that allows me to see Christ in my brother and my neighbor, etc., um, so the, the part of the danger and one of the things we need to avoid when talking about the common good is is ignoring, forgetting the notion that the common good is not just – sometimes it's not about the material wealth at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's about how does this policy, how does an economic or tax policy, whatever it might be, uh, allow me to better pursue my own vocation and be a better father or a husband? An important principle that we've discussed before – but it bears bringing up again, is that on solidarity. Mm-hmm. In a very real way for the Christian is the carrying of the cross. Right. And those moments where we may be at a point with our family where we are comfortable and praise God for those blessings that would allow us to be able to have the home that we desire, to be able to, uh, there's a piece that comes to know that you can pay the mortgage that month, that you can feed your kids, that you're in a safe area. And that can be very wonderful. But in solidarity, there is the Christian family, maybe down the street or mm-hmm. across the city, that does not have that type of comfort. They may be in a distressing situation. Mm-hmm. Our hearts should go to them. I mean, the, the, we want to be able to keep our nest safe, but our hearts may have to break a bit mm-hmm. and suffer like Christ. Yeah. We are Christians, right. Christ, you know, Christ-like. That's the, quite a challenge. Right. That's what being a Christian is hard. That's <laughs> right. It's, it's not easy. As, as Carla from Cheers, that old show, Cheers, Carla once said, Catholicism ain't for wimps. Um, mm-hmm. It is hard. Solidarity 
is a principle which the compendium says colors all the other ones. It colors common good. It colors and, and motivates the universal destination of goods. It colors and motivates subsidiarity and participation. Solidarity, is the, the, the compendium will say, is, is a moral virtue, is a social virtue. And because of what you're talking about, the corollary to the common good is this universal destination of goods. So we see a family down the street who's struggling. We all know, for instance, I mean, just let's uh, very experientially, we know it's hard to pray. It's hard to advance in the spiritual life if you are constantly anxious and worried and fearful about where your next meal is going to come from. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to pray. It's hard to have a, 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 a relaxed relationship with one's spouse or be more patient with one's child, right? If uh, one is worried about how they're going to pay for dinner, how they're going to help, you know, what about Christmas presents for their kids? Those economic realities in people's lives do in fact affect how we deal with each other in a family. And it's difficult for us to reach that total human fulfillment that the common good talks about if we're struggling with those things. And of course, to be more extreme, obviously, if I don't have food enough to eat, then I can't participate in the common good. My death is a hindrance to the common good. So this is why the church says with the universal destination of goods that uh, while we all have a right to private property, mm -hmm. you have a, an equally important moral obligation to make sure that you use that private property for the most good and that you use it so that the most people possible can reach that total human fulfillment, i.e. the common good. That's your responsibility. If our responsibility is to bring about the common good, then we have a responsibility to make sure to, to share our wealth with those around us as much as we possibly can so that they can have a share in that common good. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis and Chris McGregor, and we invite you to join us in a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth, the places touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, our history, which would later become pages in the Gospel. Along with Sister Magdalite Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 26th through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit discerninghearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the contemplative Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear 
and answer me. Amen. If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you, and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. It doesn't necessarily mean that the state should determine what we are to give or to take from us to give to another. Ideally, in that formation, in that relationship with Christ, we see the need of our brother or our sister. We first take a look at what those immediately around us are being cared for, Mm -hmm. and then from that reach out and assist. Right, exactly. And that's an important point. I mean, the universal destination of goods talks about and mentions a distribution of wealth, and, and that's sort of a dirty word in America these, these days uh, for some reason. But but the Church actually does talk and encourage, uh, talk about and encourage a, a distribution of wealth. The question is, how is that wealth distributed? Uh, for the Christian, it ought to come from the heart. For the Christian, it ought to come from that, that radical life in Christ so that we, we recognize that what's given to us by God is not ultimately ours. It's his. And certainly he wants it to go to those who need it. So we should follow his lead and, and give it to those who are truly, really in need. But again, the part of the danger here is, is believing that it's just a matter of having enough money. Certainly, it's difficult to pray, and certainly it's difficult to have a relationship with one's wife and one's worried all the time about where the next meal is going to come from. But that person may also need some help and and someone to listen to and someone to talk to about their prayer life, about mm-hmm. uh, their sacramental life, and how they're engaged with the church and how they are giving back, and and maybe some counseling with how to deal with their children, and on and on and on. It's never just about the money, and sometimes we lose sight of that. Yeah, some of the greatest brokenness you can encounter are those who may, in a material way, have an abundance of means. Exactly. And yet there is a brokenness within the home, in their heart, where there are there is abuse occurring, mm-hmm. or there is an, an addiction that is causing a great deal of suffering within. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's important, again, that balance. Look at the, the whole of the experience of each person and is their dignity being maintained in those situations, whether it's in great wealth or unfortunately in those areas of extreme poverty. All right. And, and so the church says that when we're looking to give and share our wealth and advance the common good, that we should give this preferential option for the poor. That if I have a choice between giving to a charity that helps the poor or giving to a charity that, let's say, helps animals, my option should be for the poor because that they're, they're human beings. That's where the preferential need must go. And when we look at it that way, which is, is something we understand from Christ's own life, uh, the fact that he was poor himself, that he spoke so often about the poor and encouraged those at his time to, to work for the poor, because, of course, the Semitic cultures, poverty was seen as a kind of punishment from God in a certain sense. By serving them and following Christ's uh, law, we are living out the common good and this universal destination of the goods as much as we possibly can. Yeah, there is in paragraph 183, this particular chapter, 
on the principles of the church's social doctrine, that line that should be a glaring one that burns in our hearts, that the poor are with us is a sign of human sin. Yes, exactly right. You know, that line, there's this line about uh, Jesus saying, you will always have the poor with you, and you will not always have me. The compendium actually says something interesting here. Maybe I'll just read from it very Mm -hmm. quickly. Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus makes this statement not to contrast the attention due to him with service of the poor. Christian realism, while appreciating on one hand the praiseworthy efforts being made to defeat poverty, Christianity is cautious, on the other hand, regarding ideological positions and messianic beliefs that sustain the illusion that it is possible to eliminate the problem of poverty completely from this world. This will happen only upon Christ's return, when he will be with us once more forever. In the meantime, however, the poor remain entrusted to us, and it is this this responsibility upon which we shall be judged at the end of time. In the meantime, the poor remain entrusted to us, and it is this responsibility upon which we shall be judged at the end of time. Powerful words, both sort of saying this, that both and, we should be cautious when we have those groups that say we're going to eliminate poverty from the world and we, it's going to happen, etc. There's, there's a sense of hope for that. But as, as Christians, as, as Catholics, we, we recognize that will not happen. Christ said, you will always have the poor with you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that somehow we can give up on the effort because Christ also tells us you're responsible for the poor. You're responsible for taking care of them. You're responsible for helping them and bringing them closer uh, to the fullest of life and the fullest of participations in society. And so it's both and we have to recognize both aspects of, of the church's teaching and, and the companion brings that out right there in paragraph 183. What is the healthiest way of looking at solidarity then in this context of our understanding of the poor? One of the ways I like looking at solidarity, and, and the compendium talks about this, uh, is to recognize it as a kind of a moral virtue, a social virtue. Uh, the, the social virtue aspect of it is shared by many people today, this, this notion that we're all sort of connected and interconnected. And it seems in our day and age in the 21st century, uh, there's more and more of that especially in the West, I think, of the sense of interconnectedness, that we're all kind of responsible for each other, Mm -hmm. which is what solidarity really means. As a moral virtue, though, uh, it it talks – the companion will will talk about the importance of our understanding that this is a a real responsibility that we have to act on and that it's it's something that has to be directed towards actual persons. But there's another aspect of solidarity that the, the, the companion mentions, and that's the spiritual aspect of it. We know what solidarity is, what solidarity looks like. The Western world understands this moral and social virtue only because the Western world was introduced to what it means in the cross. We understand what solidarity means because Christ first showed us what solidarity was on the cross. By God becoming man, by him participating in our human nature, um, we come to understand then that to truly help the poor, Uh, We have to become like them. We have to have that simplicity, that trust in providence. Uh, We have to live out our lives in a way that sacrifices ourselves, laying ourselves on the cross so that we can better help those neighbors that need our help most. Those who in their hearts feel a strong call to somehow express this innate gift, which it is, of solidarity, Mm -hmm. 
need to continually anchor themselves in the teachings of Christ in that term of forgiveness as well Hmm. with their brother and sister because they may see the situation of one group and be angered by the lack of response by another group. And it's important that we keep that in check so that we don't fall into sin Mm -hmm. by unforgiveness, a lack of charity, anger, those types of things that can express it. It just essentially kills the ability of the virtue to be able to be displayed and for Christ to be a shining light in the situation. Yeah. No, sadly, a lot of social justice teaching comes from a sense of guilt or anger or self-righteousness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to point with two broad strokes, but there, there is that sense. And sometimes it's, it's, it's off-putting. I know many people who were first introduced to the church's social teaching or social justice teaching in a manner that, that left them feeling, you know, kind of down. I mean, I've, I've just been told that I'm a horrible human being and, and that I've been living my life wrong this whole time. And I, I thought I was pursuing Christ, but I guess because I am not doing A, B, and C, I must be terrible or I'm p- participating in some uh, horrible system. That's usually not the way to win souls. That's usually not the way to invite one into relationship. Solidarity doesn't mean that we have a right somehow to presume that that everybody's role, actually, in participation is going to be the same. Solidarity doesn't mean, the virtue of solidarity doesn't mean that everybody's going to be given the same grace, even, to work with the poor in a certain manner. You, you look at someone like Dorothy Day, this is a woman who, before she even became Catholic, had been given a, a clear charism and grace by God, a clear soft spot in her heart for the poor and for the working person that is not regular in everybody. And those charisms, as St. Paul says in First Corinthians and, and elsewhere, those charisms are particular to people. And we ought not assume that just because we are called to have a special relationship like a Mother Teresa working directly with the poor or a Dorothy Day, whoever it might be, that somehow the mom who's at home caring for her children or the dad who's working the, the job and the extra job and the extra job in order to make ends meet and, and forming a children, that somehow they're not participating in solidarity. They are. They're feeding the hungry. They're clothing the naked. They're participating as well. They, they have solidarity as well. Uh, what's grand about solidarity, along with the sort of social moral aspects of it, is, as I was saying, the spiritual aspect of it. And that is that uh, we can show solidarity in our prayers, in our prayer life. And that's what seems to be missing uh, so much uh, nowadays. I, I, I've met those people who've been formed, I would say, poorly, Who've, who've said that what we need to do is, is stop all the prayers, get the nuns out of the convents and get them to work for the poor because that prayer doesn't do anything. That's exactly not what mm-hmm. the social teaching is about. And that's exactly not what solidarity is about. In closing this particular part of our conversation, what would you hope people would come away with? Well, we begin first with the, I think, the, this notion of the common good and the universal destination of goods and the sense of solidarity. We've, those are the sort of three important uh, aspects we've talked about. What I would want people maybe to, to, to spend time in thinking about is with their relationship with the things they own. Do the things you own, do the things you buy, do the things you want to purchase, do they help you in, in your path to, to holiness? Do they help you in your path to getting to heaven? If the common good really is about that total human fulfillment, which is sanctity, then what is your relationship with the things you own? And how better can we, and I speak to myself in this as well, how better can we use the 
goods and the gifts and the graces we've been given by God to do the most good, to bring about the common good, to share our wealth with those around us, even if, even if it might still hurt and hurt quite a bit. It's, it's perhaps a, a scary thing to think and meditate on, but the Catholic life, the Christian life, is, is one where we have to ask ourselves those difficult questions. It could hurt, but it doesn't mean it has to rob you of your joy. Exactly right. It, well put. It, if there is no joy, that's when you have to get into that interior mm-hmm. renewal and find the source of all joy, and that's a relationship with God. Exactly. It, because if you have joy, even in that suffering, you can endure. Yes. And it's, and it's okay. Yeah. But if, but if you're suffering and there's no joy, there's a bigger drought. There's a bigger, there's something, there's an emptiness that you need. We go, it goes back to that person for that need for an interior renewal. Yeah. There's a greater damage that needs to be healed by the divine physician. Exactly right. Maybe focusing on Christ's face, looking on you, with that love, that, that pained love that a parent certainly feels when they've asked their child to do something very difficult and they know it's hard for them and they know they can't help them do it because their child needs to do it for themselves. You know how much that hurts. Imagine Jesus looking at you that way. Where are those parts in your life where you're too attached to things or to relationships or to, to times or to whatever it might be? Allow Jesus to look at you in love. And, and offer those things to him and say, please help me give those things up so that I can bring about a better society. And whatever the things may be, are they so important that would make you turn your back right. on the Lord? We're not saying go out and sell them all. No. It's just in the priority list, can you turn your back on those things and look in the face of Jesus? And as you're discerning about whether or not to sell them or to keep them, always have that image of Christ before you. He's looking at you in love. Thank you, Omar. You're welcome. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.